Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Chirps. Tara and Alex with you this week. After taking a bit of a week off, sort of unintentionally, real life work got in the way. But nonetheless, uh, maybe we didn't want to talk about the games that were happening at that point anyway. So we just skipped it. (laughs) But we're back to talk it all over this week. And Alex, it's a weird situation with this team right now because despite Mike Schultz greatest protests in suggesting that this is a team playing really good baseball. (laughs) I don't think any of us are really buying that part of the conversation. And yet they're still very much, at least mathematically, if nothing else in the mix, as far as a postseason spot goes. So my first question to you is, have they done enough in the last couple of weeks to at least keep you more interested than you were perhaps a month ago when the postseason was just like a, yeah, that's cool for other people, but not for us. Well, you know, they keep losing games, which at the time, in the moment, feel like, okay, that's it. But then you kind of uh, collect your bearings and you look at the schedule and you realize we're only this many games back as Cincinnati. In fact, what, like one and a half games back in the loss column or even one game back in the loss column? We still have five games left with the Reds. So, and, and three games left with the Padres. So, in theory, the Cardinals can kind of fulfill their own destiny and win the wild card. The problem is they still have 17 games left with Milwaukee and the Dodgers, and the aforementioned Padres, who I know are in a huge swoon right now. But when we played them last time, I just felt like we were overmatched. And maybe it won't feel that way when we play them. uh, When is that? That's coming up uh, in about three weeks. So we'll see. I will say the loss on Sunday was very disappointing. Um, One, for the obvious reasons. Anytime you lose a game like that in that fashion. And I'm talking about the uh, walk-off home run that the Pirates hit, three-run home run to win the game four to three. Obviously, that is bad on its face. What made it especially bad is if we back up to that Cubs series when I was being very dramatic about that loss, (laughs) when they, what, would they give up six runs in the ninth? Or it it was a lot. It was a lot of runs. I was able to kind of, forgive that game not forget it but forgive that game because they ended up winning the last two games of the series and i come from a school of thought that says if you win three or four in baseball in a four-game series you don't really have a right to complain about (laughs) anything and especially if i do believe there is some sort of butterfly effect too in baseball like you know let's say the cup the cardinals do win that second game against the cubs there's no guarantee they go on to win those next two games as well that's just not how you know like is butterfly effect the right uh thing there i think it is right i think so yeah yeah i I, I think (laughs) i think it works anyway so what made the game on sunday so disappointing is friday night was the game where you just wanted to bury and forgive because they gave up that eight run inning a game that the cardinals had led seven to one And then they end up losing 11-7. And as it's happening, you're like, the Cardinals should absolutely be winning this game. But you know what? They won the next two games. And you go into Sunday thinking, if you win this game, that's three of four against a very bad team, fine. But you win three of four 
against anyone goes back to my thing. You can't be upset about that. You like you can't be asking for four game sweeps in baseball. That's just being way <laughs> too way too selfish. So they were on the cusp of winning that three or four. They blew it, and then it all uh, stunk. So yeah, it's um, after that series, it was. And this is sort of the yo-yo effect of a season with a team that's on the bubble, right? Is that you go through a series like that and you go, all right, I don't I don't need to really be invested in this anymore. If I watch, that's great. If not, I don't feel like I'm missing a whole lot. And could they still pull it off? Sure. Do I expect them to? No, because these losses, even the most dramatic ones, feel a bit predictable at this point. And that's not a great way to build confidence in their possibility of turning things around in the last month and grabbing that that postseason spot. But then you realize, like you said, they're still playing the teams that they have to beat in order to get in. And the weird thing about this Cardinals team is that they seem to, on some level, play to the level of their competition, for better or worse, and at least seem competitive when they have a chance to, uh, to, to make a bit of a move. I think the other frustrating thing about the last couple of weeks is that, um, and you, you sort of alluded to this, both the Padres and the Reds have lost a good number of games in the last couple of weeks that, that the Cardinals could have been already gaining ground instead of waiting to play them head-to-head. That's an advantage that you don't have any uh, certainty of, right, is the ability to gain ground when you're not playing the team that you're directly in competition with. Uh, and they had those opportunities and just did all the things that took those things, those opportunities, those chances right away from them. So that makes it feel a little bit more frustrating, but here we are two and a half games out of a spot. And look, there's some things that we can talk about that are going well for this team. Paul Goldschmidt has had a great month. Um, Tommy Edmond has had a great month. I think Tyler O'Neill's numbers still show that he he may be still a little inconsistent at times where it doesn't feel like he's having the kind of month that he's having, but he's still putting together a great season. Uh, Nolan Arenado's fallen off a little bit compared to where he, again, it's that whole Arnato and Goldschmidt getting hot at the same time thing that is the mystery. But look, there are still guys putting up good numbers. It just seems like there's that one inning where they either don't get the big hit or they give up a bunch of runs. And that's where the bullpen conversation comes back into play. I was thinking yesterday, though, that as much as we can harp on the front office for not addressing some of the pitching issues early enough, strangely, the TJ McFarland and Luis Garcia tandem that kind of came up in the middle of that mesh of games where we were all just like, I don't even know who's in the bullpen anymore. <laughs> They've really kind of stabilized some of those middle to late innings. And while there are still plenty of issues to talk about as far as the usage of the arms in the bullpen, just felt like it was worth it to mention TJ McFarland and Luis Garcia have been kind of the lifesavers of that bullpen when not a lot else has gone right in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if that's a hat tip to John Mozeliak and company for seeing something the rest of us didn't, or if it's just one of those things that they took a flyer on something and happened to get lucky and it worked, but whatever it is, uh, you know, you'd rather be lucky than good. Right. So McFarland Garcia, a definite positive in the last couple of weeks, as far as the bullpen is concerned. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's also worth mentioning in light of uh, KK being out for a little bit and mm-hmm. Flaherty going down that the acquisitions of Wade LeBlanc, uh, Jay Happ, and Lester has it's not been outstanding by any stretch right. of imagination, <laughs> especially if you look at some of their peripheral stats like, like mm-hmm. LeBlanc. But it has kept their head above water. It's been better. I mean, I'm not missing Lane Thomas right now. I I, I will gladly take this exchange for, for John Lester, and who has, I think, you know, especially last yesterday's start, shown that he can still go six innings. And, and that's kind of what we, I guess, need from this team. It's, you know, Ar- you, you brought up Arenado and... He has been, he's had an interesting season because his, the power has been there. Yeah. It's just the fact of, of getting on base. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I don't, I, I don't know if that's like a, a major issue or not. Um, and, but this was a guy when he was in Colorado who lived kind of in that like 370 on base uh, range. And he right now is, I think around 313 last I saw, which you know, is is not the end of the world, especially for a guy who's slugging near 490. But you would certainly like to see him if he could up those numbers back to Colorado level. And maybe it's silly to ever say like if he could just replicate the a certain offensive stat that he was doing in Colorado, we would all be fine. But th- that's that's been his biggest problem as far as at least as as the stats bear it out. Um, but no, I do agree with your point. The pitching has not been the problem with this team at all, at least lately. I mean, you know, here or there, we've had issues, but. Yeah, the big innings uh, tend to exaggerate what looks like uh, an issue. And I think, like I said, I think there are conversations to be had about the use of the limited number of trustworthy arms in the bullpen and the fact that there are a bunch of guys down there that don't really seem to have a role that the coaching staff believes in in at least strongly enough to put them into real game situations when it's not already a disaster or there's no one else left um i think that there's like i said plenty to be said there and and perhaps that's a conversation for another time but um you know the the usage of alex reyes and giovanni gallegos uh, you know it's and you know even cabrera the 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 blow up moments that they have may be related to some of that um but it may just be the product of look these are still young guys in their major league careers they're not always going to get it right that's where the the manager's perception of that has to come into play. And I don't know. Do you feel like the complaints about Mike Schilt and particularly those three guys are uh, exaggerated or are they pretty on point in terms of how did you leave him in there or why are you going to him again or what's the reason for it? Whatever it is. Hmm. Probably exaggerated just because this is twitter where That's we're what hearing we do yeah most of these <laughs> complaints but that doesn't mean they don't still have merit just maybe not um to the amplified degree that that we hear about it i would be fine with alex reyes not closing games uh the he, he just puts too many guys on base and i i know he had a stretch where he wasn't walking guys for a little bit but i i you know call me old i i I just don't like a guy with those command issues coming in at that 
part of the game. And especially a guy who has been used as much as he has at this point. I mean, it's not unheard of to change your closer at this point in the season. We saw it in 2013 with, uh, you know, Edward Mojico, who, like Alex Reyes, was an all-star that year. <laughs> if you and by, and by mm-hmm. September was almost unusable. Uh, we saw the same thing in 2011 with, uh, gosh, it was a whole merry-go-round of, of closers until they finally got to Jason Mott towards the end of the year. I, I wouldn't mind just to shake it up a little bit, just to maybe, I, I don't know, get some – fresh blood in there and maybe put Alex Reyes in a position where it doesn't feel as so life or death. I don't know. You know, it, it's been just such a grind of a year. Uh, earlier today, I was thinking like, am I looking forward to the Cardinals season being over because I won't have to wash them anymore or just because that means it'll be October and it won't be 95 degrees and uh, <laughs> hot and humid because that's all it's been here and I'm tired of it but that's a that's probably for another discussion um, but I, I, I think we all feel a little just worn out by this team particularly because they've shown nothing in the first five months that they have a run in them and, and I think that's what makes it tough unlike 2014, when they kind of had to go on a mini run to secure the division. Uh, Same with, uh, you know, 2018, they didn't make the playoffs, but they did kind of put a little run together that was fun to watch. And it wasn't that surprising at the time. I don't feel confident that this team can do that. I, I think back to the 2016 season that 2016 team and what was remarkable or I should say rather unremarkable about that team is how boring they were from a streak standpoint. I remember looking at, if you took any 40 game stretch in that 2016 season, I don't think they ever won more than 23 games in a 40 game stretch. And I don't think they ever lost more than like 21 in it. So they were just this boring plotting machine that just went from game zero to, to number 162 without ever really doing anything remarkable. And I haven't looked at this team in that same way, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, I guess they did get off to that fast start where they were a couple games up in first, but I, I don't think this game, I'd be surprised if this team has won more than 24 games in a 40 game stretch and they haven't, you know, they're just kind of this thing that is, is going to be fine. It's going to be average, but I don't, I don't, I just don't, they haven't shown us that they're going to put together the type of ones that are going to be needed to, to catch the, catch the Reds. I mean, even if they beat the Reds, we still have to hope that the Reds lose games while we're trying to beat the Dodgers and the right. Brewers. And who knows, right. maybe the Brewers will be so comfortable with their lead that they will uh, throw out a bunch of jobbers against us. I don't know. That's probably worse for the Cardinals at this point. (laughs) And speaking of that, don't you hate that Cubs series just looming at the end of the year? Because I feel like we're going to go into that with like two games behind the Reds. So not even in a good spot to catch them anyway. And then while the Cubs are having one of their dumbest seasons in a long time, they're at least going to be able to say like, ha ha, we, we were responsible for the Cardinals out of eliminating you from the playoffs. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's going to be, um, a rough one, uh, depending <laughs> on how things play out. No, it's interesting in hearing some of what you were saying and in, in thinking back to where we started with this, 
I wonder, we've talked before, you know, how does this front office define success? What does that mean? Does it mean you're competing for a World Series title? Does it mean that you're competing for the last playoff spot? You know, does it mean that you finish above 500 and you contend, whatever, however you define contending, whatever it means. But I think, you know, in light of some of those moves on the pitching side of things, it does sort of lend to this idea that, you know, the the point isn't go for broke and do something that's going to be drastic. It's what can we do that's not really going to hurt us that might just kind of steady the ship and then see what happens. And look, to the credit of this team, they've maintained that kind of success for a long time. So, you know, if you want to talk about a team like we did a couple of weeks ago that needs to at least be in the race to kind of maintain the the mystique of what it means to be a St. Louis Cardinal, they're good at that. I think where it gets frustrating from the outside looking in is is going, okay, but we've seen this before. Like, sure, TJ McFarland and Luis Garcia and Wade LeBlanc can come in and stop the bleeding, but it's not going to make them any better. And they need to be better <laughs> than just stopping the bleeding to catch some of those teams that have gone out and made themselves better or just playing maybe above their level of expectation this year. It's, it's interesting to see a season like this and the moves that are made, the moves that are not made that push in a certain direction. And it seems like the direction this year is just sort of to maintain the status quo (laughs) and just be sort of satisfied with a mostly average team. And if there's a, a plan in process that somewhere down the line, you know, you make some, whatever it is, take advantage of the fact that you have Nolan Arenado as a, an offensive piece that you haven't had in a long time. Get rid of some of the pitching injury issues that plagued them this season. Great. But I do think that kind of acceptance of average is what makes it so frustrating to watch again, from the outside looking in, even if there is a greater plan, <laughs> which we've talked, I'm not sure there's a good one in place, but we don't really know all the all the details. That's what makes it so hard to watch the scene because while I can sit here and tell you, hey, it's cool that Paul Goldschmidt is hitting now and it's great that McFarland and Garcia have settled into really important roles in the bullpen, none of those things are making this team better than they've been all season. They're just keeping things steady. <laughs> and that has value in and of itself, but not the kind of value that you're looking for to make a big push at the end of the season. So when you say this doesn't seem to be a team that has given us any any indication that they can go on a run, to me, this is part of the reason why, because there's been nothing done to make this team anything different than it's been all year. Yeah. um, I I remember when we talked right after the deadline when they made the trades for Hap and Lester, I kind of looked at it as they don't believe in this team in 2020, but they still believe in this core going forward. And so look, if they end up winning 84 games, 83 games and miss the playoffs, which they will, whatever. um, I can live with that. If, they see that as like, okay, here's what we have to do. Here's here are the, if they actually evaluate the mistakes they made and 
adjust for 2022 for a team that, that on paper looks like and on the field that can win 90 games and compete with and compete for the division. Uh, I, I hear a lot of people saying that, like, well, and and I touched on this when we talked a couple of weeks ago. Well, I don't want this team to win 84 or whatever games because then they're going to be satisfied with with the results. I don't agree with that at all, especially attendance wise, because in, in previous years where that's happened, the attendance has still been there, and that's not the case anymore. So I I knowing what very little I do know about the powers that be that make all the decisions, I think they will be spooked by, by these, by this attendance that we've seen the last couple, a couple weeks. Y- you were in the group chat, right? When I asked Kyle, cause he lives in St. Louis. I was like, is there, I, it, it was against the Brewers too. If I recall, it was one of the games against Milwaukee. I, I had to ask him if there was like some unknown weather event that 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 was going on or moving in that you know someone who doesn't live in the area wouldn't know about because there was no one there and he's like no it's just this is what it is and yeah which is a really interesting piece of this equation i think not to cut you off but no you're fine i do i'm i'm fascinated by what those conversations might be in the front office because i think it's very easy to say well we're still in a pandemic and believe me i get that i haven't driven the distance to go there or to Chicago, which are the two closest teams to me, because at this point, I don't feel like it's worth it (laughs) with the crowd of people, with the issues that are are involved there and, you know, all those things. So I get it. I understand that part of the process, but I don't, I, I think it's easy to point at that. I think that misses a lot of the nuance and the layers and probably the additional reasons that people aren't going to games in St. Louis, but they're going to games in other places, right? If it was, and look, I, attendance is down everywhere. I think part of that is because of the start of the season, they weren't allowing fans and then they slowly were and then whatever. But we've seen the Cardinals play in other places where there are many more people in the stands <laughs> than there have been in St. Louis and sort of the St. Louis thing, part of that mystique, part of that culture is the fans come no matter what you're going to play in front of 40,000 and it's going to be great and it's going to be loud. And they're going to be not this year to the point that the players are even talking about it and acknowledging it. And I, I don't know that there's a simple answer to how do we get fans back in the stands, even if you peel away the pandemic part of that conversation, because I think people are just kind of not that invested in this team. And maybe there are a lot of reasons for that. Maybe it's just that they're average and people don't really care, but like the Cardinals have had average seasons before. And I don't remember seeing the ballpark this empty. So that conversation has to be, front and center i think with this front office in terms of okay what where did we miss this season in not making people buy in to what this team is agree and i i'm not gonna pretend i know exactly what's going on for attendance reasons i'm sure the pandemic has some part something to do with it in st louis but I don't think it has much, and this is very anecdotal, but two weeks ago I went to uh, the Nats-Braves game in D.C. Um, This is, again, two weeks ago. At this point, the Nats are well out of it. Um, They had, you know, they basically sold off, you know, Max Scherzer at the deadline and, you know, all all sorts of things. There's there's no – 
there's no one believing that this team is going to do anything this season. Um, and the stadium was packed. And D.C. is a city of, of rule followers. Um, they wear masks. They don't, you know, they, especially if it's airing on the side of the liberal position. You know, I don't want to get into that, but, but uh, airing on the side of w- what, you know, kind of the intelligentsia says to do. Um, so if there's any place you would expect to be like really impacted by hangover from the pandemic or the fact that the pandemic's still here to me, it would be like a place like Nats park <laughs> and it was packed. Um, so I, I think St. Louis has a, I think they have a problem on their hands with fan fatigue. Uh, and it's not just pandemic uh, again, incredibly anecdotal. Um, I, I don't like, I don't always like to speak on this stuff because I don't live in St. Louis. So I don't want to pretend I know I have my finger on the pulse of everything that's going on there. But from the outside looking in, I think, and just how I feel in general of just, you know, sometimes the biggest enemy is being so successful because how do you maintain that sort of momentum? Uh, Not just in the standings, but just with excitement with your fan base. Uh, Yeah. Remember when Pittsburgh made the, uh, when Pittsburgh went to the postseason in 2013, um, it was their first winning season since 91 and obviously their first postseason appearance since 91. And their fans were out of their minds. They showed up. They were so into it. It's much easier to uh, kind of cultivate that sort of fan excitement when you've been so boring and bad for many years versus what the Cardinals are. And believe me, that doesn't mean I want the Cardinals to be what the Pirates were for all those years, just so when they get good, it can be all fun and exciting again. I That's the last thing I want. But I, I do think it is hard to maintain this sort of momentum when you're a franchise like the Cardinals of continuing to like, you know, when they've been to the mountaintop and it, it's not easy to stay up there. But when you're still kind of in this zone, like how do you keep fans excited? Uh when they're basically saying, seeing the same thing that they've seen for a very long time, they're not seeing anything new, like, like the Pittsburgh fans were seeing that, that year. So, and I think it's, it's I think it's, it is. And I think it's a little harder when the kind of public, Hey, I don't know why you're not satisfied with this team seems to fly in the face of fans who are like, but have you watched them? (laughs) Yeah. What? I mean, you want to tell us that we're great fans. You want to tell us that we know our baseball and Cardinals fan. But then also you're telling us to be really excited about average. And it's it feels a little insincere and it feels a little bit uh, like it, it, it just it's just off the messaging compared to the product on the field and sort of the idea that, well, you're Cardinals fans. You should just love it anyway. It feels a little feels a little silly. You know how they the the first rule that people say the first rule of Twitter should be don't tweet. The first rule of yeah. owning a owning a sports team should be don't ever complain about the fans. Right. Just just <laughs> if you're annoyed with them, just pretend they don't exist. Yeah, uh, and I would say the same for beat writers as well. Don't mm. complain about the fans. Yeah, unless they really give you a good reason to complain about them. Well, uh, and look, we've we've talked for years about the fact that the only way to maybe turn the attention of the front office is for fans to just not go for fans to say like, no, this isn't, this isn't it. You can tell me it is all you want, but I'm not dumb. I'm watching what's happening on the field. And while 
we all understand the cycles of a baseball lifespan, right? Of a team. Like we've seen that we've, we've seen this play out and sometimes they make the postseason and look really silly once they get there. And other times they don't make the postseason, but none of it makes it feel any better when you're watching and going, I thought you told us they were going to be better than this. <laughs> well, they're, they're still probably going to beat Pakoda. True. Maybe that's what they, that's how they define it. They're like, please, Pakoda, say we're going to be terrible because then, well, then we got you. No, 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 no. Well, yeah, like, Bill, like, he's going to say, like, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we clearly had some miscommunication here. I don't care about the postseason at all. I just, right. I just zero in on these Pakoda projections and that's, th- that's my goal right there. Once those come out and they have the Cardinals really low, they're like, sweet. <laughs> yes. We got this, guys. Yeah. <laughs> What was Pakoda? Uh, 79? I think it was 79 or 80 so. wins. 80 wins? So. Like yeah, yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to go back and check. Yeah, we'll have to find. Maybe we figured it out. We just, you're welcome, everyone. We finally discovered how the front office defines success. And look, we, we joke about that. These guys didn't get to where they are by not knowing how to do things successfully, which is part of what seems so frustrating, right? Is that like, if we see this, they've got to see it, right? They've got to understand what it looks like from the outside in. And maybe they need someone, uh, you know, to consult and tell them what it looks like from the outside. And that's what they've got us for, right? And that's, that's why they listen to our show every week, obviously. Um, but I do think that we have to, and I know you're going to talk about this here in a minute anyway, but we have to acknowledge once again the wonder that is Adam Wainwright and the fact that we get to keep watching him and keep seeing him do things that don't seem to make any sense. But when you think about who he is, the competitor he is, the way he's always played this game, maybe it does make sense. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that if anyone can figure out how to kind of reestablish their career at age, their age 39, 40 season, um, it would, it would have to be Adam Wainwright, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, Look, this second half hasn't been as like dominant just on the same level as Jack Flaherty two seasons ago, just in the way he mm-hmm. was mowing people down and almost not letting anyone on base. But results wise, it almost has been like, like yeah. I want to tell you, uh, and, and sorry, everyone's going to have to listen to me um, get on fan graphs real quick and go to his game logs because I was doing this the other day and his last eight starts have just been incredible and bear with me for a second. I'm going to tell you what his numbers have been since July 23rd. He has a 1.59 ERA in 51 innings pitched and that's seven starts. So he's averaging over seven innings pitched and barely allowing anyone to score a FIP of 2.48. He's let's go. Let's, Let's keep going a little. He's, Striking out uh, 23% of batters, walking 4.2%. You, you know, so he's he's like Adam Wainwright from like 2014, o- although you can tell it's not Adam Wainwright from 2014 because he's he's not quite throwing the same stuff. He's not throwing quite as hard. Um, but it's been just a joy to watch. I would encourage everyone uh, who, who's listening to this, if you haven't already, to read Ben Clemens' article in Fangraphs uh, on, on Adam Wainwright and kind of like what he's doing. It was really in-depth, and Ben is excellent at these types of articles, but basically kind of showing like what he's doing in terms of like he's he's throwing a lot of sinkers for strike 
when when there are no strikes but but the minute um the, the minute it gets a little deeper in the count he's somehow really good at painting the corners with his sinkers or at least putting the ball where if the batter does make contact hopefully he's not going to make that great a contact and you know and he's also been lucky because he has arguably the best defense in baseball behind him and he is allowing them to do what they do which is turn uh balls in play into outs and if nothing else we we will have this season from Adam Wainwright to to remember 2021 and that in and of itself is not trivial because it has been an absolute joy to watch yeah uh- I don't want to step on uh, the chirp of the week, which I know also relates to Adam Wainwright. But the thing that I think is one of the most impressive stats for Adam Wainwright this year is that he's second in all of baseball in innings pitched at this point, which I think at the start of the year, we all kind of thought, okay, maybe Adam Wainwright benefited from the short season last year where he didn't have Mm, to mm -hmm. think about longevity, right? He was able to kind of go all out for the short season and that may have made him look a lot better than he would have over the course of a full 162. That is not the case in terms of what this year has looked like. And he's right behind Zach Wheeler for the second most innings pitched in baseball as of recording this. And I don't think anyone would have thought that he would have the second most innings pitched for the Cardinals in 2021, much less in baseball as a whole. So uh, bravo to Adam Wainwright. Belated happy birthday from Chirps. And I do, much like Yadier Molina, hope that he returns for one more ride with uh, with that duo to let us all see this hopefully one more time in uh, in 2022. Because at this point, why stop, right? He's on a roll. Might as well just see what else he can do one more time around. Absolutely. <laughs> I, and what he's doing now, I mean, this might be a bit of a stretch, but when uh, Roy Holiday um, unfortunately passed, Joe Sheehan wrote a great tribute to him in his newsletter and basically called him like the last workhorse because Holiday was a pitcher who um, – was throwing like eight or nine complete games a year um, already into an era where that just wasn't happening anymore. And believe me, Wainwright's not doing that, but he has three complete games this year, which is the most in the National League. And he had two last year, which which led the league. And and I believe at least one last year was a seven-inning complete game, like a doubleheader. Right. So in perhaps one of those was this year as well. So I, I don't want to – although I, I'd have to – Certainly, I don't remember. At least two, I know last year was. At yeah. least two have been nine inning complete games. Yeah, and yeah. so I don't want to make that direct comparison, but he does kind of feel when he's out there like something from uh from an era that is no longer with us. Like a, a guy who, if he's pitching well, will 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 throw 120 pitches. We'll it's weird to him. say that Adam Wainwright is kind of a throwback pitcher, but he's kind of a throwback pitcher at least at this point in his career, where mm-hmm. you know he's so different than what so many guys are doing. And this is the part that I go back to and say, if anyone was going to figure it out, it was probably going to be Adam Wainwright because he's such a a student of the art of pitching that once he found whatever it was that he found, I hope he's teaching it (laughs) to the other guys in that uh, on that pitching staff, because it's given him the, the freedom to just do what he does and not try to do it like anybody else is doing. And man, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun to watch, even in a year where not a lot else has been super fun. Adam Wainwright has given us that moment uh, every five days or so to uh, to really enjoy what we're seeing from him. 
Alex, if there's nothing else about the rest of the team, let's just keep talking about Adam Wainwright with the Chirp of the Week. Absolutely. Uh, so as you mentioned yesterday, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday. So on Monday, Adam Wainwright turned 40, which is remarkable to know that he's 40, still pitching this well. Uh, remarkable to know he's still pitching as well, especially after those few starts that people have made note of in 2018 when it looked like his career might be over. But let's back up real quick and look at kind of Adam Wainwright's career. He was drafted in June of 2000 by the Atlanta Braves, number 29 overall. Uh, The Cardinals actually could have picked him up. Uh, They had the 24th pick that year, and they selected Blake Williams. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, yeah, if the Cardinals wanted to uh, get him the old-fashioned way, they could have. But they, you know, they they saw uh, they they saw something in Adam Wainwright, and you know, had him come in the back door instead. Um, now, he was drafted, like I said, June two thousand twenty. Current player Wander Franco wasn't even born yet. If uh, <laughs> he was born on March first, uh, excuse me, March first two thousand one, so that that is pretty interesting. Wainwright made his debut on uh, September 11th, 2005, when Dylan Carlson was a strapping uh, six-year-old. And uh, when he made his debut, he was the 18th uh, player to ever play in Major League Baseball. Um, And to give you an idea of how many people have come since then, and a lot of them come and gone since then, Wander, Frank, Wander Franco was listed as the 22,430th player mm-hmm. in baseball. So 3,631 players um, separate those two. Wow. Now, if, if, uh, if you follow this, you might say like, well, th- those numbers don't really make sense to me because I know Paul DeYoung was like number 19,000 famously. I think what's going on here is when baseball reference acknowledge all the Negro League players everyone kind of like bumped up a bit. So I don't think Paul DeYoung would still be listed as number 19,000. Mm. And and Adam Wainwright used to be lower than 18,799. I think once they added in the Negro League players, sure. um, I think that's why those numbers have since been adjusted, in case you were curious. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, he's having just an unbelievable season for a guy who's 40. Um, now, this isn't his age 40 season because on July 1st, he was still 39. And that's kind of what controls this. But look, you're this old, you're 40. I say he's, I say it counts as him being a 40 year old. And of course I did a uh, baseball reference stat head search for uh, pitchers who age 40 or more who have thrown at least 200 innings because Wainwright is on pace to throw, believe it or not, 200 innings. He's at 170 <laughs> right now, who have thrown at least 200 innings and have had an ERA under three because Wainwright okay. right now sits at 2.97. So again, pitchers over 40, thrown more than 200 innings and an ERA under three. I actually expected a big list. I What I expected was like four or five players from like 19... 19- 47 or 1950 on and then like 50 players from before that but really it's not like that there's actually only 13 different seasons such seasons um and i well i was right about the uh you know a a lot of them did occur before uh 1947 there's only been six since 1963 um and they are names you will most certainly recognize uh warren spawn did it in 1963 
Nolan Ryan did it in 1987. Uh, Nolan Ryan was 40 in 1987, and we all remember him pitching like well into the you know 93 season with the Rangers. So yeah, just whatever. Uh, Rick Russell did it in 1989. Uh, Roger Clemens did it in 2004. Randy Johnson also did it in 2004, and then Roger Clemens did it again in 2005. Mm. So even though Wainwright's not one, he hasn't finished this season yet. His ERA could easily balloon above three, uh, or he might not make 200 innings pitch. So um, he's by no means going to be a member of this club anyway because he's not technically in his age 40 season. But those are the type of pitchers we're talking about who have um, done this. And for the guys before 1947, we're talking about guys like Pete Alexander, Eddie Plank, and Cy Young who did it three different times. Uh, so all big names, all, you know, mostly Hall of Famers on this list. They're players who would be Hall of Famers, but for being Roger Clemens. Um, <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, Adam Wainwright won't be able to officially join this list because it is his, whatever, age 39 season. Um, but I'm going to be watching. And if he does hit 200 innings, keeps that ERA under three, I will mentally add him to this list. And <laughs> since Yachty signed on for another year, and since we're still not sure what Wainwright's going to do, but I can't imagine a scenario where he doesn't come back for at least one more season. Uh, maybe he'll have a chance to officially uh, put his name on the books, which I will say if he ends next year and he's 41 and he has an ERA under three, no, no, no. You, you have to come back for an, uh, you, like yeah. you, 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 <laughs> you can't be done yeah, yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's quite wishful thinking to, to uh, ask for something like that. Uh, so I don't think it's something we'd have to worry about, but there you go. That's Adam Wainwright. Yeah. Just an amazing pitcher, an amazing human being. I'm happy he's on our side. And I'm really happy to see him enjoying this part of his career because there were, like you mentioned, there were moments where it looked like he was going to be done and it was going to be just this this crushing blow to see Adam Wainwright, of all people, end his career in that fashion. And man, it's such a different story now that at this point he can kind of write his own ending uh, to at least how he wants to pursue the the last the last years of his career at this level. And, and that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to watch. He's a lot of fun and it's fun to watch him have fun. So <laughs> that's part of what makes this ride so enjoyable do, for, for the fans to watch. Do you have an all-time favorite Adam Wainwright moment? Oh man. Um tough, right? it is tough. And I think like if there's a part of me that's really kind of biased to the Adam Wainwright moment, right? The the 2006 closing mm-hmm. out of that postseason, because for me, that was the first time I got to see the Cardinals win a World Series. And for a lot of people, I think it's the same way. That's sort of what cemented Adam Wainwright in my mind as like, this is my guy. <laughs> uh, so it's hard to beat that. It's hard to beat that. And the, the Yachty bear hug um, in that moment. I think um, there have been some complete game moments. What was it when the, the 2016 was it was like the reunion mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. a few years back and he, he threw a complete game in mm-hmm. a year that he was not pitching particularly yeah. uh, well. That was, that was a pretty cool moment. Um, they were all there. Right? I would have the, to, the, yeah, yeah. Everybody was, was there. 2016. Yeah. It was, uh, it was yeah, the July yeah, start. If the, I recall. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That was a pretty cool night mm-hmm. for sure. Um, there've been, and then I think there was uh, a game 
One of those complete games last year where Colton made a spectacular play over his shoulder on the the final out of the game. Some of those reactions from Adam Wainwright are the best part of watching him pitch. Mm-hmm. So those are all pretty cool. That, but that was man, game there's a lot to choose from. Too, I believe. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Two seasons yeah. ago, maybe. Um, I think it was two seasons ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, last year doesn't really. Yeah, it's easy to no easy to, <laughs> easy to blend in. Yeah, I would. You know, there's Wainwright striking out Beltran and Wainwright striking out then Brandon Inge to win the World mm-hmm. Series. Those are both like hard to compete with uh, for obvious reasons. But you know, he wasn't quite Adam Rain- Wainwright in my mind yet. It was he was more just like, yeah. oh, this you know this this guy could be fun. He's only like 25 right. years old. You know, you know, there's a lot of potential here. I think back to a start that I, I think a lot of people forget about um, just because it's been buried under a lot of other great postseason moments. But uh, game five, 2013 against the Pirates, uh, when mm, I, I think yeah. he threw a complete game that evening. In fact, yeah. I know he did. Yeah. And, you know, it was a uh, it was a winner take all game. Uh, we lose that game. Which is we- fascinating because I think. Adam Wainwright hasn't always had his best moments in the postseason. And but he's had some really spectacular moments in the postseason as well. I think it's easy to kind of, especially in a season like that, um, almost lose track of those brilliant starts because there are some that didn't live up to it. But yeah, that's a that's a great one. He um, and he's had a lot ruined. <laughs> like the uh, yes. the Matt Holiday game against the Dodgers. Uh, yep. Uh, Adam Wainwright pitched beautifully in that game. They should have won. The uh, same with 2014, I believe, the Michael Walker game against the Giants, mm-hmm. Travis Ishikawa. Wainwright, yeah. Wainwright pitched well in that game. Uh, I watched Adam Wainwright pitch a brilliant game against the Nationals in the 2019 that, NLCS. That was the next thing I was about to say. So he, he <laughs> and does. I was there for that game, mm-hmm. and I was like, this might be the last time I ever see Adam Wainwright pitch, and they're going to do this. Awesome. Yeah, well... <laughs> It, it could very well be the last time you see we saw Adam Wainwright pitch in the postseason, but hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully we have something something else to add to that list. All right. We could talk about Adam Wainwright all day. Uh, the Cardinals have kept themselves in the race at this point. We'll see what they do to finish out the series with the Reds and go from there. So we'll be back to talk about the rest of it. Alex, thanks for uh, thanks for your time this week and for chatting and uh, bringing up all those beautiful Adam Wainwright memories. Good to be here. I can't wait to talk next week when the Cardinals are, you know, half a game out of the wild card and we're going crazy. <laughs> we suddenly care all yeah, over again. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens in this roller coaster ride. Thanks for hanging out with us as you listen to the show. And if you have a favorite Adam Wainwright moment, please let us know about it on Twitter. We would love to reminisce a little bit more about one of the very brightest lights in this season and others. So, For Alex, for Birds on the Black, I'm Tara. We'll talk to you again real soon.